0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SubChina Access. And visit subchina.com to check out our wide range of reported pieces, op-eds, videos, and, of course, podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is a man who not only ingested hydroxychloroquine, but also injected himself with bleach and lived to tell about it, (laughs) Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy, I can't believe that after your ordeal, you're still... Are you going to cast your first ever presidential ballot for Kanye West? I mean, seriously, man, you got to get that bumper sticker off your car. You're throwing your vote away, man.
1: You know, I I actually at this right this particular moment in history, I feel compelled to just make sure everyone understands that that was a joke. You know, after. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> believed that I was actually caught selling wealth management products to old ladies in Dongbei. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the funniest things ever.
0: Okay, it's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> But you should greet the people anyway in an abject tone
1: of apology. (laughs) Well, if anyone has uh, any interest in buying one of my wealth management products.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, well, how wealthy are you, actually? (laughs) Anyway, on a more serious note. uh, Yes. Protests broke out in several cities in Neimeng, the Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region, in late August and early September, after controversial moves by Beijing to substantially reduce Mongol language education in schools in the region. Uh, today on Seneca, we take a deep dive into the reasons why Beijing has decided to push forward with its so-called bilingual education model in Neimeng, and and what the reaction to this has been.
1: Joining us today to discuss this is Christopher Atwood, Professor of Mongolian and Chinese Frontier and Ethnic History at the University of Pennsylvania, and author most famously of the Encyclopedia of Mongolia and the Mongol Empire. Christopher recently authored a widely cited resource on the very topic of today's discussion, a primer, as we say, although I've discovered in America it's a prima, on the situation with bilingual education in in Inner Mongolia. It was published in the Made in China Journal. Christopher, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. It's really great to be here.
0: Yes, uh, welcome, Christopher. Also joining us in his second appearance on our program is Christian Sirache, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Colorado College. Christian is, as you may recall, the author of Shaken Authority, China's Communist Party and the 2008 Sichuan earthquake, which he talked about the last time that he was on. But he's also someone with extensive experience in Mongolia and one of the editors of the Made in China Journal, in which Christopher's explainer piece appeared. Christian Sriracha, welcome to Seneca.
2: Oh, thank you for having me on again, Kaiser and Jeremy And um, in Mongolian, sanbat Sano or hello everyone.
1: Before we dive into the topic um, and ask you also for perhaps more uh, Mongolian lessons, Christian, could you first tell us a little bit about the Made in China journal? It has Italian origins, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Uh, Made in China actually has a very interesting story. It began in 2012 as an Italian-language monthly newsletter um, aimed at union officials. And so, th- so this was the, uh, the the project of uh, of Ivan Franceschini, who then brought the Made in China idea to the Australian National University, the Center uh, on China in the World, where he he teamed up with Nicholas Lubert, who is now at Lund University. And and both of them are are really the the kind of heart and soul of Made in China, and they're the main editors. And then they brought on board um, an editorial board, uh, including myself, as well as uh, several other people. And that's pretty much the the organization of of Made in China. Um, The idea behind it is also fairly simple. Um, we, We think it's really important for scholars to present their work to a general audience. And it's also extremely important that Made in China is free. That it's open access and that ideas um, can 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 circulate in this way. So, in addition to uh, to Made in China, which we uh, put out um, put out the journal now three times a year, um, we we also have uh, projects in tandem with Verso Books. Uh, Last year, we published Afterlives of Chinese Communism, Political Concepts from Mao to Xi. And this year, um, we're working on a new edited volume called Landscapes of Chinese Labor that looks at the history of the making uh, and unmaking of the the Chinese working class and that should be out hopefully by the end of next year with Verso. But these these books too you can buy them in paperback but they're they're also available um open access as well.
0: Fantastic. That's great. Um is it of the left? I mean, am I to understand that it's actually sort of a kind of a left-leaning journal or or am I mistaken in that?
2: <laughs> is made in China on the left. That's a very good question, and, and I would say definitely that we take a critical leftist perspective, but this also opens up another question, which is how do you define, or how do we define, what it means to be left when the world's largest communist party is so fully embedded, and not just embedded, but a, a, a driver of the machinery of global capitalism? And when there are disputes between labor and capital, almost always uh, takes the side and uses the state apparatus to defend capital. So this is actually a a really um, important time to think about what it means to be on the left without falling back on typical kind of cliches or, or cosplay revolutionary dress up. Um, in addition to that, I mean, we're, we're mainly, uh, committed to a lot like you are here at Seneca, opening up a space of conversation where we can take a, a critical and sober look at what's happening in China, at what's happening in the U.S. without it getting enveloped in this, uh, uh, competition between great powers and ethno nationalisms. So we really want to, to open up um, a space where we can have that the uh, people discuss their scholarly work, but uh, translate it into a language for a um, for a general audience. So that's kind of the the, the heart and soul behind uh, the Made in China project.
0: These days, anything that isn't sort of purposefully ethno-nationalist does tend to be of the left. Anyway, um, all of Mongolia including what is today the country of Mongolia, or as they, they say, outer Mongolia, was controlled by the Qing dynasties, whose rulers were, of course, Manchus, also people of the steppe. I, I think it's it's a good idea if before we jump in, we first kind of review the history of Mongolia. Uh, and, and let's really start from, you know, 1911 with the, the Xinhai Revolution and the abdication of the Qing in, in early 1912 and go through, you know, 1921 uh, when Mongolia declared independence and, um, Christopher, uh, could you tell us a little bit about this? Give give us a little bit of background on how it was that the two came to be separate and these competing claims that, uh, uh, that, that the Qing Dynasty, the KMT, and then later the PRC had.
3: Sure. Uh, except I'm going to go back a little bit further, actually, to 1901. Um, okay. Great. So uh, – as part of the Qing dynasty, Mongolia, Inner Mongolia, and Outer Mongolia, as it was called at that time, were uh, tributary principalities. Each there was about, about 150, 125 of them, uh, and each one of them was a, a prince or a duke subject to the Qing dynasty. Uh, and that had, they had a lot of autonomy. 1901 is a really key year because that's when the new policies began, and the Qing dynasty moved from that loose tributary principality idea towards a directly sort of settler-colonialist idea. We're going to actually open up these lands to Chinese settlement, uh, which had previously occurred, but it was kind of frowned on by the Qing government, and change the system of government. Eventually, we're going to integrate these areas, Mongolia, Tibet, uh, completely into the Chinese provincial system. So that began around 1901, and there was a lot of resistance, uh, both from the princes as also from the common people. Uh, also from the lamas, the Buddhist authorities. Uh, so eventually, even before the Xinhai Revolution on October 10th, uh, in May already the chief Lama, you could say, sometimes called Mongolia's Dalai Lama, the Jibzindambo Tuktu, gave uh, was uh, asking Russia for aid. So when the by that time there was already a kind of crisis in the relationship. So in 1911. Uh, At the end, in the autumn of 1911, Mongolia declared independence and Mm -hmm. became Mongol the country of Mongolia. So they were no longer outer Mongolia. They tried to bring in inner Mongolia. Uh, There was a war between uh, Mongolia and the Republic of China in 1913. A lot of things happened, and in the interest of brevity, I'm just going to say that inner Mongolia, some people wanted to join them. Some were kind of hesitant. Some wanted to maybe join a Manchu... Japanese-supported Manchu state, but in the end, the Republic of China was able to control inner Mongolia, but Mongolia eluded its control and remained, again, with Russian support in the Russian uh, orbit. 1919, uh, because of the Russian Revolution, again, real complex picture, uh, China comes back into what they now are calling, again, outer Mongolia, And they bring it in, they give some very elaborate promises of very high level autonomy. And as soon as the Chinese armies are in what's now Ulaanbaatar, those promises are all immediately broken. Uh, And we're moving towards, again, a move to try to establish Mongolia, all of it, as a warlord base for one of the the people in the Anhui clique. So the uh, Mongolians then appeal to Russia, but this time they're appealing to Soviet Russia. And they begin a, and the Soviet. Civil war, Russian civil war spills over into Mongolia. There's white Russians active in Mongolia. They the,
0: the Baron Baron
3: Baron Ung. Yes, yeah, Baron Ungern Sternberg. Yes, the famous, was, most yeah. colorful character. And there's a uh, uh, you know, is a great stories about him. a uh, Pretty awful person. Um, he actually interesting. Mongols at first welcome him, but after about a couple of weeks of him, they're like, ah, oh, get us away from this guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of crazy. Uh, but in a way, he's actually very useful for the the Bolsheviks because he does most of the killing of the Chinese. So the Bolsheviks uh-huh. kind of want to avoid. Killing, you know, attacking the Chinese because of course, they want to get Chinese support. So they don't, you know, even if they, you know, they, they they're, they're like to do as little direct opposition to Chinese control in Mongolia as they can. And the baron does most of it for them. But there is one battle. There's one battle where the, the Red Mongols, the Mongols of the Mongolian People's Party, as it's called at the time, supported by the Soviet Union, do attack a Chinese garrison. Then, with the help of the Red Army, they come in and they liberate uh, Ulaanbaatar. And so in July, of 1921 they establish reestablish Mongolian independence and that's the date that's celebrated as Mongolian National Day to the present it's not until 1924 though that they declare the People's Republic the okay Mongolian, as I said, the took the so-called Mongolia's Dalai Lama, he passes away in May of 1924, and they decide we're going to move to a People's Republic.
0: I see. So the early 1920s are a really critical period, though, because you know in yes. China, in 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 Guangdong Province, in in, in Canton at yeah. the time, the KMT is reorganizing and it's doing so under the direction of the Comintern with the help of of the Communist International, uh, and. I'm I'm curious what Sun Yat-sen's attitude was. Did he accept the reality of an independent Mongolia or was he willing to press the claim despite, you know, Soviet domination of Mongolia after 1923 and despite the fact that the Soviets were so involved in the reorganization of the KMT?
3: His attitude was actually quite interesting. He um, so a, a representative of the new Mongolian government, uh, independent Mongolian government, visited in 1924 was actually at the first uh, Guomindang KMT Congress, and uh, Sun Yat Sen gave a speech, and he was basically about how you know virtue is better than force, and he basically says we recognize. Uh, Mongolian, we we don't try to force Mongolia to become part of China, and therefore the Mongolians are very, you know, willing to come to our conference and come to our Congress. Uh, So it's really quite, it was a a really interesting moment. And then later on, actually, uh, over the course of, from 1924 into 1928, the KMT supported a kind of a joint project in Inner Mongolia, where the KMT supported revolutionaries in Inner Mongolia, who wanted something better than what they had. And there's kind of a lot of debates about what that was. And that party was also being supported by the Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party, as it came, soon came to be called, the party that was ruling the Mongolian People's Republic. So it was a kind of Inner mongolian party that was sort of jointly sponsored by the KMT and by the uh, party in the Mongolian People's Republic. Wow. Uh,
1: that is uh, truly remarkable. I, I mean, you cannot think of something even remotely similar happening today. No. Um, But uh, after 1949, um, Chairman Mao just abandoned the Republican claim completely over the entirety of Mongolia, did he? Even as uh China continue to use the successor state to cheng argument to press its claims over Xinjiang and Tibet. Is is that right and why?
3: Yeah, that's a lot of this has to do go let's go back to that 1920s party. Um, they were also supported by the Soviet Union. And again, one of the things that is that kind of interesting background of the PRC and the CCP and everything is that they were members of this broader World Revolutionary Communist Movement. And that included Mongolia, which was a country that was part of that uh, coalition that, of course, also included the CCP. So, Inner Mongolia had a long tradition of people participating in and joining this revolutionary coalition in search of, I mean, realistically, actually, most of them wanted to become part of Mongolia. But a lot of them were, they, this common turn the Soviet Union's international revolutionary organization was telling them you can't become part of of the Mongolian People's Republic. You can't, uh, you have to stay within China, but you'll be an autonomous region. That's what you're going to get. You're going to get autonomy, not independence. And so that was a a lot of the history there. Of course, and from 1945 to 1949, after the defeat of, of Japan, uh, there was a Chinese civil war. And of course the communists were very dependent on the Soviet Union. And of course, by that time, Mongolia had had decades separated from China. um, You know, it was really just kind of one of those things that you, you wouldn't even think of from the Mongolian point of view of ever going back to going back to China. So I think Mao, in that point, it was kind of realistic. It was one of those things that maybe he didn't, whether he didn't like it or you know whether he did like it or didn't like it. Uh, he had he it was what he it was a bill that he had to pay if he wanted to get Stalin's help uh, from the Soviet Union, and it was one that ideologically. <sighs> Um, on, you know, on alternate Tuesdays, the CCP could say this is about our you know, adhering to the communist position of not believing in nationality oppression, not believing in, in forcing countries to be part of other countries against their will. There's a lot, of, a lot of different things you can have in the communist system, and that was one of them, which you could identify and emphasize if you wanted to.
2: I think a really important concept to grasp is the importance of great Han chauvinism, or Da Hanzu Zhu Yi. And for this, we have to go back to the fights that, that Lenin was fighting with Stalin at the end of his life, where Lenin was arguing that the nationalities, um, that the Soviet Union cannot just reproduce Tsarist uh, imperialism. And at a certain point, Lenin even says, Are we simply just taking over the state apparatus from czarism and anointing it with Soviet oil? These are in the later writings that, that people don't often pay attention to. And, and Lenin's point um, there's another great line where he says, Scratch some communists and you will find great Russian so- chauvinists. So, so for, for Lenin, it was really important to have. Um, uh, national, uh, the autonomy of the nationalities to combat this great Russian chauvinism, and so as, as Chris mentions that this idea starts to circulate and gets picked up also by the Chinese communists, and and there's a tension between the concept of the Zhonghua Minzu, which the, um, both the CCP believed in, but was really being put forward by the Mindang in the 1930s. And then this idea of of, of national autonomy. And um, So it it gets very uh, interesting in the late 40s, and we, we should also recall that Inner Mongolia, the autonomous region, was established in 1947, actually, two years before the official establishment of the People's Republic. And part of the communists' strategy of people's war, of trying to gain the trust of the ethnic minorities during the Long March and then in the borderlands, was to... Try to make good on this promise of minzu, actual autonomy. So
0: I don't want to get too bogged down in this. I mean, if know words, know if you're, if you're, our listeners are going to recognize that it's important later on, but I think we need to go over some of the basics of, of the Inner Mongolia autonomous region, its, its demography and so forth, uh, because that's sort of more immediately relevant to the topic today. First of all, I'm, I'm curious, Christian, is there a kind of natural boundary between what we think of as inner and quote unquote outer Mongolia, is there, for example, a linguistic or an ethnic divide? Are there geographic features that make for a natural division between the two?
2: I think Chris could, could Christopher could speak better to this question. Um, one thing. Um, is that the actual boundary itself was the, the the physical demarcation of the boundary occurred right at the moment of the height of the Sino-Soviet split and China's souring relations with Mongolia and was demarcated in in 1963. And then in in, in terms of um, the linguistic uh, differences, I think uh, I, I defer to uh, to the uh, to Christopher.
3: Yeah, sure. There was uh, there was actually a longstanding kind of division between the two. Inner Mongolia had come under the Qing rule much earlier in 1636, and outer or Halcha Mongolia did not come under Qing rule until 1691. So they had somewhat slightly different systems. There was a little higher level of autonomy allowed to the princes in outer Mongolia. There is a There is some linguistic divisions, although actually the interesting thing is in present-day independent Mongolia is pretty homogenous in terms of language, so-called Halka dialect. Inner mongolia is very diverse, so that's also perhaps one of the reasons why traditionally Inner mongolians did find it uh, difficult to, to unite, to act as one, uh, right. perhaps. So there was a greater dialect diversity in Inner mongolia
0: So we can you know, get along to the, the topic at hand. I'm just going to go over it quickly. I think that a lot of people don't recognize that they're roughly the same size geographically that it's, I think, uh, just not much bigger, maybe only 10% larger in land area, outer Mongolia than inner. But in terms of population, uh, outer Mongolia only has about 3.35 million people. Uh, inner Mongolia has about 24 million. The number of ethnic Mongo- Mongolians, though, um, is actually quite hard to count. Can you talk very quickly about why that is? What makes it so difficult to, to say the percentage of people who are actually ethnic Mongolian?
3: Yeah, that's a really, um, uh, we have one nice firm count, which is the number of people who are part of the Mongolian Minzu in China. And that's, an, that's a legal thing. It's on your identity documents. But the thing is, it's not necessarily a social reality. Uh, that's early, 17%, is that right? Something like that, yeah. yeah sure. uh, but of that 17%, uh, a, a good chunk, maybe about 10% or maybe a little bit more, are people who up until the early 80s were in fact not registered as Mongols ethnically in terms of their Minzu. In the early 80s, the Chinese uh, government allowed people to, as long as they had, I think, one great grandparent who was – of a minzu of one of these designated nationalities, they could transfer their membership to that, and that carried with it certain advantages in terms of the family planning system. Then, in effect, and also in terms of the Gaokao, yeah, college admissions, which is right. a super important thing uh, for the upwardly mobile. So that's about ten percent, maybe, would fit that. There's also, a, you know, there's also a number of people who are just. Uh, maybe of a mixed ancestry, you know, a, uh, frequently a Mongolian father, Han mother, or, or you know, the verse, who may be, again, their Minzu status may be uh, Mongolian, but who socially aren't really part of this and are not really part of this story because they're not educating their children in the
1: Mongolian language. Yeah, got it. Makes sense. Um, so let us turn to the actual topic at hand, which is, is recent news. Um, yeah. Could you outline, Christopher, what the bilingual education policy would actually do? And because it actually sounds like a positive thing, like you get to learn in your own language and you get to learn in Chinese, which is a very useful language. I mean, in America, you know, it would be great if there was bilingual education, but it's not viewed as positively uh, by the many, many Mongol people. What is it that they find objectionable?
3: Well, the main problem is that although it looks... Good on paper. In practice, it's a massive demotion from what they had previously, and there's worry that that demotion will go further. So, right now, uh, the situation in, uh, in Inner Mongolia there are, are uh, schools for for people of the Mongolian nationality. Theoretically speaking, Han could also um, register for. These are Mongolian language schools. In these schools, all topics, and this goes all the way up to uh, Kate, you know all the way up to twelfth grade. All topics are taught in, um, in Mongolian language except for Chinese language, which is taught as, as a topic, as, you know, learn Chinese as a, not your native language, and then you also learn a foreign language. The new policy, what it would do, it would take within the years of required education, first grade through ninth grade, three classes would be taught only in Chinese on the basis of new textbooks, which are supposed to be super great because they're prepared by the state. These new <laughs> textbooks, one of them is uh, called Language and Literature. Uh, and so now, previously, Language and Literature in these schools was Mongolian. Now Language and Literature is defined as Chinese. And so that will be beginning from the first year. Then you will uh, also have all of your classes in law and morality or, uh, or morality That's and right. law. Uh, they, they will be also conducted entirely in Chinese and all your classes in history will be conducted entirely in Chinese. So this is a, a program that was going to take place over three years. They're going to move the language and literature into purely into Chinese Uh, this year and then next year they would go with uh, uh, morality and law and then the year after that they would go with history so it was a three year plan according on paper then about uh, you would actually be taking a number still taking a number of classes in Mongolian math would still be in Mongolian science classes if you had them would still be in Mongolian in the upper grades uh, your classes in um, what's uh, sometimes called the three little classes, uh, art, music, and uh, physical education would also be carried on in Mongolian. As well as also, there would be a, a new class. The old language and literature class in Mongolian would now be re-titled Mongolian language and literature class. And this would be then still taught in Mongolian where you would learn about the Mongolian language. So it looks like a small change, but what it means is that, first of all, for example, in the first year of the Mongolian schools, all classes were in Mongolian. You didn't actually begin Chinese until sometime from the second or third year. So you had that first year where you were learning entirely in your mother language. But now that's going to be changed to um, adding in uh, Chinese. The other problem about this is that in many other areas of China, particularly in Xinjiang and in Tibet, and now also in Qinghai and in uh, Tibetan areas of Qinghai and in uh, Sichuan, the move to adding these classes was part of a larger move that has eventually ended up in many areas of these uh, Xinjiang and Tibet of actually having all classes in Chinese except for one class in the local language. One class where you, one hour a day where you learn some Uyghur if you're in a Uyghur area or you learn Tibetan if you're in a Tibetan area. So there's it's the direction of change that it's a big demotion of the Mongolian language status in the schools and then the possibility looking at other areas that it might go further.
0: Great, right. So this new bilingual education push is, as many people, including both of you guys, have, have pointed out, uh, it's part of this second generation Minzu policy, which we've talked about on the show a number of times. I'd refer you back, listeners, uh, to two episodes that we've done: one with Tashi Robgay of George Washington University and Jim Millward of Georgetown, and one with Christian Shepherd of the Financial Times. Definitely give those a listen if you want a, a primer on. Uh, the second generation Minzu policy. But for listeners who need a quick refresher, uh, let's quickly lay out what the original Minzu policy was. Christian, you talked a little bit about how it had its roots in the old Soviet system, um, and why it came eventually to be seen as a failure by people like Ma Rong, by Hu and Huang
2: The really important thing to, to get at in terms of these historical foundations. Mm-hmm is that Mongolian language and and education in the Mongolian language was really part of the Communist Party and the inner Mongolian um, revolutionary leaderships in the 40s, part of the promise and part of that kind of foundation. And the the main party secretary of the inner Mongolian uh, autonomous region, uh, Olanhu, which means red sun in Mongolian, which wasn't his original name, his original Chinese name, um, I believe was like Yunzi, but uh, he changed his name to, to, to red sun in Mongolian. His entire career from 49 to 66 was all about about um, creating these institutional and educational um, foundations for, for Mongolian language. Ironically, he didn't speak Mongolian himself. <laughs> and so I think part of that was driven of a kind of recovery of Mongolian nationality, um, and, and which then became a very uh, – th- so, so autonomy – is tied to territory, culture, language, and and, and economy, right? right? And so you already don't really have territory in a certain way with the constant uh, migration Inflow and flow of... of, of uh, and this is a problem that comes up in the protests in Inner Mongolia in the early 80s, it's a recurrent thing that doesn't go away. You don't really have the, I mean, the political economy of, of, of pastoralism still exists in certain places, but also very marginal. So what do you have left, right? So, so in a way, the promise of autonomy is very much tied now to the language, because there's also no real political teeth behind it, um, behind autonomy at this point, anyway. So, so language is like the last bastion of defense of of, of, of of like Minzu identity and autonomy. Yeah.
0: So if that was the case, why did people like Ma Rong and Linhe and Huanggang uh, find the old system so troubling? If it was if its essential features were already so badly eroded,
2: um, I think the idea I think the problem is is that having these ethnic autonomous regions. In their mind, allows for an ethnic consciousness that then enables a mode of separatism or all of the kind of trouble that you see in the borderlands. And instead, I think their argument is simply that China, what was the case in the late 40s and the 50s, is no longer the case today. China has developed to such an extent that instead, right, we need now, in in the language of Xi Jinping, we need a common national consciousness. We need a, you know, Zhonghua so part so
0: I, I, it feels like they used to believe that the zhonghua uh, minzu this I- identity as being chinese is part of the people's republic of china and the minzu the individual ethnic identities or what used to be called minority nationality identities were not zero sum that you could actually have both and now the second generation group thinks no one comes at the expense of the other necessarily. Chris, is that yeah? Is that a I think I think
3: there um, – yeah. That's a that might be a way a way to put it. I think one of the other possibilities is that realistically there was always some sense among. Um, not everybody in the CCP always accepted the first-generation Minzu policy in the first place. It was kind of controversial. Um, it was, and in many ways, it's still slightly, uh, you could say, a downgrade of the autonomy from the level that existed in the Soviet Union and certain features. Um, so I think there always was... It, and beneath the uniformity of something, this is you know something that Mao had agreed to, so therefore it's kind of sacrosanct. You really can't go back on it. It's very constitutional. It also builds up with a lot of local elites who are very invested in it. Even so, I think uh, it, there was a fair amount of descent under the surface. The other side of it, of course, is that China's economic integration is happening very rapidly. There's also a lot of urbanization yeah, yeah, yeah. going on. And so one of the things, these Mongolian schools, there are some in urban areas, but I think a lot of their basis comes particularly in areas that are still predominantly ethnically Mongol. And these are areas that are mostly in the countryside um, in, Mon- in um, Inner Mongolia. So to that extent
0: there isn't economic integration in where there isn't right? well
3: it, 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 I mean there's economic integration on the basis of them being herding areas that produce things I mean they're producing yogurt and so on the people for are yeah, yeah, making for the chinese market so it's integration within a particular context, but still, as that uh, urbanization happens, this opens the way for um, opportunities to inf- bring up greater national unity. I should say one last thing. Although the autonomy, Christian is right in saying that the autonomy policy really doesn't have teeth. It's important, it still makes a big difference, actually, in the staffing of the government of the autonomous regions. Uh, one of the few things that is, is fairly rigorously held, is that an autonomous region has to be headed by the titular nationality. So the person who runs the inter-Mongolian autonomous region has to be a Mongol, even though they're only 17% of the population. And that actually goes through, if you look through the percentages of people in the government, it's much higher than the 17%. Uh, the people in the legislature, much more than 17%, the people in the, the number of cadres. So um, this autonomy policy, and that sets up something. First of all, there's a lot of Han who resent it, the same reason people resent, you know, uh, reverse discrimination, uh, affirmative action, reverse discrimination, et cetera, whatever you want to call it, in the US. At the same time, though, uh, Mongols feel they should all be Mongols. It's an inter Mongolian autonomous region. It's a Mongol autonomous region that's declared by the state. You know, so they should. So you set up this nice situation in which both sides feel aggrieved. Both sides feel like they they should be getting something. People like uh, Ma Rong, and they 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 look at this and they say, "See, we're having uh, um, uh, limits on simply choosing the best person for the job. We're having limits on simply." Um, uh, pfft, Uh, prioritizing economic development and this is what's holding these western regions backward because of course they can point out the western regions are generally more you could say backward quote unquote than the east there you go Uh, and they have lots of nationalities you
1: draw a correlation you get an answer um, can I ask, is there, um, uh, you know, because in some ways there you, you could have two interpretations of this as it relates to language policy. The one would be a more charitable interpretation that the government would like ethnic Mongols to be able to participate in the economic boom and and and, politi- uh, and politics. Therefore, they need to have native-level Chinese if they're going to have any chance of uh, s- succeeding. And so this is a, an attempt to actually lift them up. That would be a charitable explanation. My more cynical brain would tend towards the other explanation, which is that if we are to stop separatism, if we are to stop... Uh, all of the negative effects of the first generation Minzu policy, the thing we absolutely must crush is language because that's central to the identity. Um, is that, do you think there are people who vary between those two poles and you know, where is the impetus for the language policy part of it coming?
3: That, uh, I think it's um, a lot of it is impetus is um, I should say stereotypes about uh, about minorities which may not actually be re- re- real. One of the things that I think I always want to emphasize is, it's um, it's true, it's uh, in the 1982 census, the literacy rate for Mongols in Inner Mongolia was slightly lower than that for Han. 24% for Mongols uh, were illiterate, 26% of the Han were illiterate. And that slight difference has continued into the the 1990 and 2000 census for which we hmm. uh, have figures. Now, it is true that mostly, uh, that for most nationalities in China, these uh, minority nationalities or or少数民族these that it is true that uh, literacy is uh, rarer than, or illiteracy is higher than it is among the Han. Oh, that's I'm certainly, yeah, yeah. For the that's certainly not the case in Inner Mongolia. Similarly although there are places in China where Chinese language is relative, the command of Chinese is poor, that's really not much the case in Inner Mongolia. So the people who are arguing for this policy in Inner Mongolia, there was quite a debate going on over the summer from the period from about um, mid-June up until uh, August, when the government suddenly said, no more debate, close it down. Up until that time, there was quite a bit of debate. And the the Mongol argument... those defending the existing education system was that this is a success. This is a success in China's terms. People right. like Shorgan, people like Boyan Hishik is an aeronauticist at Tsinghua University. And you look at like single township level units that have had like five professors coming out of them from that township level unit in rural Inner Mongolia. These are, these are fairly successful places. So I think one of the things I think is that many of these second Generation now, so I think thinkers—they let the stereotype of minority quote backwardness
0: do their thinking for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I can totally see that.
2: Right. Like, the, uh, just to you know what what Jeremy is saying, actually, it is part of the the line that a lot of people are are taking. Um, uh, batter who is, I believe, the party secretary of the uh, Guojia minway uh, so the. Committee for Ethnicity, the National Committee for Ethnicity, went to the Central University for Nationalities last week. To give a speech, and he was hitting all of those points that Jeremiah was just saying in the more generous reading, right? That we need a national language. You need to be able to speak the language of the nation that can be used anywhere. He even says this will be the next step for all minor- all all minzu. On he uses the word on the objective road to development, right? So, so this, but but Chris, I, I think Christopher is completely correct that that it's, it just isn't the case. Um, that that the system was working, which then raises the question: Why now? What is behind and what is? I'm sorry, I don't want to take over your role here, asking questions, Kaiser. Right? But but what is what is driving the policy? And and so I've been trying to read things that that Xi Jinping has been saying recently, and and in I think it was in Xinjiang where he gave a speech um, using the metaphor of a pomegranate, and he said that that the relationship between all ethnic minorities is like pomegranate seeds altogether. And so I don't I don't know, I'm, just, I'm trying
0: to, th- I, I honestly don't have a reading. I'm just trying we, to, we, to- We in America had a couple of metaphors that we used to use. Uh, one of them was, you know, the melting pot, right? Uh, I, I know that the response of some of the proponents of the policy, uh, a lot of them are really, are really re- miffed that it's drawn so much criticism from the US, given that, it's the American model that these guys that Marung and, and company have sought to emulate, you know, when he was formulating these ideas. Of course, it's a model from a past, you know, a, a past America. But, but I, I kind of see, you know, why he it would be that he would cry foul at the U.S. for wanting to stop what has been a kind of destructive piece of of in the creation of nations. This is something that France went through. Uh, in, I mean, you go to Southern France, people don't speak Languedoc anymore. I mean, you go to Italy, they're not regional languages anymore like there used to be. Uh, this is, you know, an inevitable historical process. Is there part of you, of other of you, that sympathizes with that?
2: I, I, I can I, I, I love that question, Kaiser, and I, I do actually, unsurprisingly, have strong feelings about it and and i think marong um, and i've read some of uh his his writing on, on the on the topic but i think this this general idea is a really um almost cartoonish or also whitewashed version of, of American history, like if you read indigenous scholars like Audra Simpson, or like Nick Estes, their critiques over of US multiculturalism is specifically that that these are actually indigenous sovereign nations who have signed treaties who are still political. In their own way, right? So, so part of treating um, indigeneity in the US as either racial or treating it as multicultural and a politics of recognition entirely erases the politics, agency, sovereignty of, of indigenous peoples and acts as if the problem of settler colonialism is already done, you know, and my, my friend Audra, who is, uh, who's, who's Mohawk, you know, in her book, she writes, you know, people are not settled, they're not done, they're not gone, which then poses the problem, what do you do with these people, right? Right, So the question, I guess, is do, you, do we think that China operates in a settler colonialist fashion along its ethnic frontier regions or not?
0: Christopher, you had a really great analogy when we were talking the other day right, Native right, Americans right. and on the reservation system. Uh, explain, explain what you meant about, about that. About- sure. Well, think of it this way. Imagine
3: there is a, a socialist revolution in the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. and- <laughs> <laughs> and the idea is to totally get, you know, totally deal with the legacy of settler colonialism in the United States. Um, so, as a way of doing that, rather than just have reservations, we might have take all of Arizona, for example, and declare it to be a, a Navajo autonomous state. <laughs> uh, or take all of South Dakota and make it the Lakota autonomous state. Now, it's an interesting way to try to solve the problem because, and and one of the ways you then do it is, for example, to have one hundred, you know, a Navajo medium schools, um, raise that level of 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 education to the level of uh, something that is uh, suitable for the full range of modern education. At the same time, though, you'd have this weird situation because, you know, as a Navajo autonomous state, Arizona's governor has to be Navajo. But on the other hand, they're actually, like, they're far from the majority of Arizona's population, and you're not just going to get rid of it. So what you do is you create this carefully crafted system in which, say, Navajos are overrepresented pretty much at every level, but on the other hand, they're not the majority, and you have these you know, interesting uh, ethnic um, negotiations. At the same time, one thing also happens is that certain areas in Arizona, the Navajo Autonomous State, remain heavily Navajo- Demographically. But other areas, you're in the capital of the Navajo autonomous state. And what's it? Is Arizona's capital, is that Phoenix or Tucson? It's Phoenix,
0: unfortunately. Tucson's the better city. I grew up in Tucson. Okay.
3: So you go to Phoenix and you look around and you say, this doesn't look very Navajo. Well, in a way, it's not. But uh, so you get this very interesting situation. Then Okay, so the you know there's been these big promises of this new revolution that's going to deal with all of that legacy of settler colonialism. And as I mentioned, the warlord period in China was a legacy of settler colonialism uh, in Inner Mongolia. Uh, vast areas were co- colonized and settled with no recognition of Mongolian land rights or community rights at all. Uh, and 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 people were resisting. They just got kicked out and so on. So then you go back, now we're like, we've recognized that problem, and now we're gonna have like a Mongolian education. And then, what, 70 years after that socialist revolution, they take that away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a sense of going back, of like, you know, it's like, you know, you're going back to something that supposedly this regime was created to take us out of, the bad old past that was created to take us out. Yeah, of. no,
0: that's a fantastically good analogy. The, the the opposition has taken form in 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 these open letters that have uh have, yes. have been passed around. I think it, it's interesting the particular form that these open letters have, have taken. I think that without somebody to decode it, the meaning of this whole thing, uh, the, the sort of the uh, semiotics of it, would be lost. But fortunately, we have you guys. So let's talk about both the form and the substance of these circulars. Uh, what is significant about the yeah. way that they were presented? And what are the particular complaints?
3: One of the interesting things is that these signatures are always written in a circle.
0: Yeah. And
3: these this goes back to these movements uh, in the early 20, late 19th, early 20th century against the kind of settlement of Mongol lands by uh, what was called the Um And it's interesting, these letters were directed primarily at Mongol authorities. They would say, you Mongol authorities up there are selling us out. To the outside pressure of Han colonization coming in, but in order not to be punished, they would write it in their names in a circle, so that you couldn't tell who's the leader. Uh. So that's it's this clever way to avoid leadership, and that's exactly what's going on here. First of all, the petitioning is primarily to the Inner Mongolian, the government, to the educational establishment, which is mo- is is. is Headed by Mongols in most cases, and is over rep- Mongols are overrepresented in it. It's also a very leaderless movement. Mm-hmm. You really can't identify anybody who's a leader here um, in this movement. I think that's also been one of the frustrations of the authorities. They, they, they're you know they've really got to you know they, there's no one person they can grab and make them say this is wrong. Um, sorry, I was a mistake. Everybody go back to school. So again, that leaderlessness is part of that being written in a circle.
2: And and as Chris mentioned, one of the ways in which this is playing out is is taking the shape of of parents not sending their students to school, or if they already did send their children to school, of going and and, and picking them up, right? So there are certain um, photographs that were circulating that all the all these Inner Mongolians on the street protesting. Actually, they weren't directly protesting. They were going to get their. Well, they were indirectly protesting. By getting their children from school, which Uh now has actually created that the the local government has been sending text messages saying, you know, it's your responsibility, it's your duty to send your kids to school, and they've also been threatening saying education is compulsory by law, so by not sending your children to school you're violating the law.
0: They could bring in Kamala Harris to sort that out. That just made my day. But
2: but, but I just want to add that this pressure then is compounded on Mongolian. Cadres on Mongolian teachers on Mongolian administ- school administrators because then they have this 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 double this this pressure of being part of the state system, state party system and being also having pressure from below by the, by virtue of their Mongolian um, eth- ethnicity and it, it's actually true that there have been several um, several suicides uh, I think the latest one in in Arlen of a, a Mongolian uh, a school principal who didn't want and there have also been resignations of of police and resignations of Mongolians in administrative functions who don't want to carry out the, these rules. So, the, the, so the, this is taking all kinds of complex and, and much more subtle modes of critique. A friend of mine put it uh, using, a, I don't know if it's a Mongolian phrase or more common sense, but she said to me, when you meet a wolf, always stand downwind from him, which I thought was a really uh, a neat expression. But there have also been very, um, you know, the typical online on WeChat protests of, of candles or of, of black screens um, about the suicide. And I just want to note, because I think this is brilliant, uh, a few days ago, uh, China recently commemorated its 75th anniversary of Japan's surrender. And, and an Inner mongolian uh, on, on WeChat shared a clip from a movie which was criticizing, you know, the Japanese barbarity in not letting Chinese speak their own language. And you can, and, 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 and you know, just like the, the Japanese guizzi.
0: Touché. Yeah.
1: So, uh, I mean, is there a chance of an open revolt? You know, these are sort of, uh, this is a little bit of activity around the margins. Is How, well, it, how popular could the unrest it, get?
3: It, well, it... it, it.
1: It's not exactly around the margins. I mean, um, uh, there are
3: large numbers of schools in many of uh, the so-called banners, which is the county-level unit of heavily Mongolian uh, areas, where school attendance is now as low as about 15%. Um, so, these are basically empty schools wow. uh, in many areas. And so, there is still, uh, I mean, this is, as I said, it's mass leaderless resistance. And one of the problems is, is that, as Christian said, the People who have the parents who have their children in these schools are being told if you don't get your children back into school, you will be fired. But those are those people who have their children who would be going to Mongolian schools are exactly the Mongolian cadres, the people whose. Position in there is what Mongolian autonomy is supposed to be all about. Um, so it's really getting to be a, a, a it, it's a, it's a very difficult conundrum for the authorities in Inner Mongolia because. This mass leaderless resistance is – the only way it can be broken is by um, – Concentration camps? Well, or by simply <laughs> – ab- I mean, that ab- seems abolishing me. the, the well, usual remedy. Well, in fact, yes. I mean, no, there are people – there are already – there are re-education schools. Um, there are people who uh, – teachers who have refused to teach in these schools are, um, there's, again, we have, there's documents that have been published that are saying you will be sent to a re-education school to learn uh, more properly what you should do. There are people who went to the funeral of Olan, the principal in Arlien who committed suicide, who have been sent to class, special classes to be re-educated. They went there to show the respects for the suicide, uh, and they have been sent to classes to be told, shown how that's improper. Um, So the, the the point is it's really becoming a point where any facade of a kind of autonomous region of a special role for Mongols in this is being broken down by this, you could say, passive resistance. It's passive, but it's meaning that the only way the state can break this is to basically eliminate all
1: of the views of autonomy. A last question for Christian. Is there much organizing outside of China on behalf of uh, ethnic Mongols inside the PRC? Uh, And uh, what about in the country of Mongolia itself, where there is already some popular anti-Chinese sentiment? As illustrated by today's news, uh, if I may just quote from a Reuters report about 100 mostly peaceful protesters, gathered uh, on uh, Sukhbata Square in front of Mongolia's government palace and chanted, let's protect our native language, and Wang Yi, go away, because the Chinese foreign minister is just visiting.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a terrific question. And is anything involving Mongolia and inner Mongolia extraordinarily complicated? Um, so yeah, there, there's been a massive media campaign, from, uh, on social media, from people in, uh, the, uh, Mongolia and also within a Mongolian, uh, a diaspora. And I think is the name Chris, uh, the, the Southern Mongolia Center or Southern.
3: Human Rights Information Center, SMHRIC.
2: Southern Mongolia Human Rights Information Center. So you can already see with the positioning there, Southern Mongolia, just like how Chinese say Waimong or Outer Mongolia, all all makes an implicit claim, right? Um, They've been circulating petitions to the White House uh to take action which um I can get into this later if anybody wants but I think that's a very very bad idea do not give the Trump White House any ammunition in this awful uh thing that they're doing uh, <laughs> by restarting a cold war but beyond that they've also been adamantly referring to this as a a cultural uh a genocide and and so the they really Uh, I think what gets interesting is to see the comparison between these very passive and and highly legal uh, and and constitutional modes of resistance that are just claiming the autonomy promised them in China, and then this extraordinarily vocal anti-Chinese sentiment coming from Mongolia. Where it also gets complicated is in two I'll try to be brief but is is in two ways. One, I think that there is a lot of anti-Chinese racism and sinophobia also driving it. Some of the images that I've seen Mongolian friends share on Facebook, you know, have been have been offensive. Um uh, uh and and my friend Frank Bile has a wonderful book on the origins and the the of, of the deep-rooted anti-Chinese fear, anxiety and loathing. In Mongolia. And, and I've experienced it directly, too. When I speak Chinese in public, I, people turn around and they see that I'm white and they're like, oh, I'm not going to hit you now. So, um, you know, it's not that bad, but it's bad. Right. So there's that. And then another thing that, that Chris could possibly also speak to more is that Inner Mongolia um, actually preserved the um, has the, the, the vertical script Right. And the calligraphy for the vertical script is an intangible UNESCO heritage. And, um, in Mongolia, however, um, because of the linkages with the Soviet Union back in the day, they use Cyrillic, right? So there's also this kind of attachment, like, inner Mongolia is the, I think, Chris, you put it in our conversation that the, the res, the, the reservoir, right? Or the, the, of of this authentic mongol bichik or authentic mongolian script so 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 it plays out in, in a in a in a very strange like bifurcated way
0: mm. Yeah. Mm, indeed indeed i I'm, I'm so many other questions i, I i'd want to put to you guys let me just ask one question is the second generation minzu policy now basically a done deal is this simply the direction that that beijing's going in and it that's something we're just going to have to accommodate
3: um, I would say yes, um, except that uh, you know maybe I, I maybe I don't want to quite believe that the policy in Inner Mongolia is going to be quite as hardline as it's in yeah. fact looking right now, uh, because I do think that there really there's two the Chinese government is two the Inner Mongolian government is two alternatives continue on this extremely hard-line line path or make some kind of safe phasing facing withdrawal and go back to the old policy because I, I don't think anything short of this very hardline policy is actually going to break break the strike break the school strike um, and that's what they're really doing they' bra- they're strike breaking uh, so if they follow that then yeah second generation minzu policy is here to stay this is it um, I don't think they're gonna eliminate the whole uh, autonomous region things. Maybe the next step will be have an Inner Mongolian autonomous region that is still 100% autonomous, but maybe it'll have a Han as, as its as its head. Uh, <laughs> that would then be the final nail on the coffin of the first generation nationality policy.
2: If, if I may just jump in, there, there's also a difference too between there were massive protests in Inner Mongolia in 2011.
0: Right after the miners were yeah.
2: Right, there was a a a Mongolian herder who was blocking, I think, a a truck of 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 some coal mine, Yeah, yeah, coal miner, right, and the 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 Han driver runs over him. So how did the Chinese? And then there there are massive protests that start at the schools, that start at the colleges, right, and universities. So how did the government handle that? Um, well, they executed the Han uh, truck driver. So that was you know, and then it was a, a typical carrot and stick approach where they tried to crack down on on the the, the protesters that they deemed most responsible for like now sure, and then though. In the years after, there was this massive subsidization in Mongolian culture. Like I was in like Shingol in like 2016, and they had a brand new like museum dedicated to, 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 to Chinggis Khan that I had no interest in, but I had to spend like the whole day there with my hosts. You know, <laughs> uh, they had like horsehead conservatory, like head fiddle, like Matochin or uh, uh, uh conservatories, all built. But this actually goes back to what Marong is, is 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 suggesting. What did, like part of what his argument is 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 depoliticization and culturalization,
0: museification.
2: Yeah. So <laughs> so so it's basically you celebrate a a very highly curated, choreographed, controlled uh, Mongolian culture, but all of the rest of it is entirely uh, erased.
0: Like. Come see the Lakota Rain Dance performances at 1, 3.30, and 5. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Well, anyway, thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, this has been extremely eye-opening for, for me, and I'm sure for Jeremy. Absolutely. Uh, but stick around, dear leader, because right after recommendations, we have a Mongolian song for you that really captures the centrality of language to the identity of Mongolians. And and Christopher is going to give us the lyrics in English, so stay tuned for that. But let's move on to recommendations. First, let me remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by China. If you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network, the best way you can support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter. It's chock-a-block with great reads on China, delivered to your inbox every weekday. Sign up, spread the word, be happy. Jeremy, kick us off. What do you got?
1: So a kind of general recommendation, I finally decided to give up buying books on Amazon.com for various reasons. Ooh, interesting. uh, So... Uh, our local bookshop local independent bookshop in Nashville Parnassus Books has a good uh, website and they can order stuff it's a bit slower than amazon but and there's no audible and stuff but if you still buy print books i recommend buying from your local bookstore if you don't know what it is or you don't if the bookstore doesn't have a website there's a a, a service called bookshop.org which allows you to funnel some money to your local bookstore and still buy books electronically. So if you think Jeff Bezos has just a little bit too much of the share of your monthly expenditure and a little too much power and money, perhaps think about that.
0: Excellent, excellent Uh, way to stick it to the man, (laughs) Jeremy.
1: By recommending local bookstores, yeah. To the barricades we go.
0: (laughs) Christopher, what do you got uh, for us?
3: Well, I got, um, I've been doing a lot of reading, so I went back to books that I've read before uh, on all this uh, COVID quarantine thing. So... Uh, and to one that I really, I went back to it and I was, wow, that's wonderful, um, is Saul Bellow's Ravelstein, uh, which is a wonderful novel uh, based on, it's a Romana clef so there's a little key, you can look it up on the Wikipedia page and you can find literally who every single person is. You wonder, at some points you wonder, what's the point of not using the real names? But he didn't. So uh, it's a great, uh, wonderful novel. Um, and I just really enjoyed it. I, I also got one other thing, which um, the hero of Ravelstein would definitely not like me to say uh, cuz it's uh it's not classical music uh but just always every time uh, the Allman Brothers band's live at the Fillmore East every time oh, it play it's just a wonderful 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 so those are my two recommendations Th-
0: that's a fantastic one that's one of the best live albums ever the Fillmore yes, East that's uh, yes. just it's 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 right up there great recommendations christian what do you have
2: Alright, so since I've been uh spending a lot of pandemic time at home with my eighteen month-old son, I've been really looking into good uh children's books and, and literature, and this one is 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 too old for him, um, but I, I I got it anyway and I'm enjoying it for myself. It's uh Gianni Rodari's Telephone Tales. Which is illustrated, and and Rodari was one of the most famous um, Italian uh, children's authors um, in the uh, in, in in the 60s and 70s. Um, but because he was actually also a um, a, a, a communist, he was never translated um, into English until until recently. And the Times just actually did a really nice review of this book, and it's 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 magical, and it's um and and I love it. So I I. Recommend Johnny Rodari, Telephone Tales, published by Enchanted Lion Books.
0: How old are the kids?
2: Uh, Eighteen months. So I mean. Oh, okay. So you're <laughs> we're, we're still it's reading planning. like the, calip- the caterpillar who you know eats the apple and right, so on. Right, and right, so right.
0: Forth. good night. <laughs> you know, thinking ahead. Thinking ahead. Yeah, no. Good. Good man. Good man. That's good. Good parenting, Christian. Excellent. <laughs> Uh, mine is actually just for something pretty lowbrow. It's a, it's a HBO documentary series, uh, called The Vow. It's a series, I think I've seen four or five episodes now about a multi-level marketing company, CUM CULT, called ESP and XIVM. You guys have probably heard about them. Uh, it's run by this, this, you know, real kind of Svengali character named Keith Ranieri. He's in jail now awaiting sentencing. Maybe by the time this podcast comes out, he'll, he'll have been sentenced to it. It's a wild story. I mean, it's, it's, it's told pretty unevenly. I mean, sometimes some episodes have been great. Some have relied too much on just like weird visual effects, uh, but it's still pretty engrossing. Uh, it's got lots of wacky stuff. I mean, uh, kind of tabloidy in in parts, but I, I actually I went down a rabbit hole. I mean, it's, it's, it's great. They, they, they managed to get so many people to talk. Uh, part of it is because one of the people who flipped was the videographer of the cult itself. So he's just got a ton of footage of this stuff, but, um, I, I'm I'm not comfortable with everything that that I've I've seen so far. I don't want to spoil anything for anyone who wants to watch this still, but uh, I suggest you look at the website of the investigative reporter uh, who isn't the the person responsible for, but whose work was definitely important in the making of this documentary. This guy, uh, his website's called the Frank Report. I don't know. I don't, I mean, he may have gotten free of this cult, but he's definitely not managed to free himself from the attraction of other lunatic ideas because there's a lot of QAnon bullshit on there and there's like 5G and COVID theories and, 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 uh, you know, Microsoft and, and, you know, it's just, it's, I guess it's just that mindset that you're susceptible to, to that. Uh, I suppose you're doomed forever. But anyway, it's, it's worth watching. The Vow, uh, HBO documentary. Thanks, guys. Um, let's. Thanks, Jeremy, It's
1: good as always. Likewise.
2: Good to finally see you in person.
1: Thank you, Jeremy. So... COVID-19 has its silver linings. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Christopher. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Okay, and now for the promised song. Christopher, uh, the school of our village, can you tell me a little bit about it? Uh, and then I'll ask you to do a little reading of the lyrics uh, so that you know, we don't have to actually run them over the song and ruin it.
3: Yeah, this is a song that uh, really illustrates, I think, what is at stake for many of the people, uh, I- the Mongols who are sort of um, uh, uh, who are so stubbornly resisting. Uh, uh, it's the school in the Som or village. Som is a is a is a specifically Mongol. Uh, township level unit in uh, in inner mongolia it 's a song it's uh, the lyrics are by Tingle the singer uh, she her name is Sadsichen. Uh it basically it's it's very sentimental it's you know sort of a one room schoolhouse kind of thing but it 's a specifically Mongolian school and it talks about how the Mongolian school is kind of continuous with the Mongolian life uh, these people are learning it's not it 's not a traditional school in the sense of it's not like a a Buddhist school, but it's a modern school, but it's a modern school in the countryside. And the lyrics have all kinds of allusions to the way in which uh, this school exists as part of a Mongolian pastoral community and is supported by that community. The teachers and the, the parents are kind of, they're all on the same page as to, where, you know, um, as to where this is. So you'll see that in the lyrics. Um,
0: Those lyrics.
3: So I'm going to read the lyrics, and there's a, maybe I'll insert maybe a few uh, brief uh, explanatory notes. Letters taught by my teacher in dale, dale, is a Mongol robe, is the world's only upright wisdom. Upright here means basal, which is also the word for vertical, and that represents a script, so it's an allusion to the script. The lowly mountains of the rich Hangai or wooded mountains look so peaceful in distance. With a vac- vacation, with a vacation during the lambing season, and homework to collect argal for the fire. So to f- fuel the school, they would collect livestock fire to um, uh, d- livestock dung to be used as fuel in schools. My school in the where I could always recall my mother so near in the next post station, a black chalkboard with a felt duster. Just one window for the eyes to gaze out. edzgi and Adol, these are kind of traditional dried whey and curds, brought from home with the joy my mother sent me. With a vacation during the mowing season and homework to collect winter food, my school in the Somme where I could always recall my mother so near in the post-road station. The ringing sound of the bronze bell was the only sound that I desired. The outline of my father's horse coming by was the happiness I was waiting for with a vacation during the ra- racing season, and where you get candy for coming in first. Literally coming into Attic, this is a sort of fermented mare's milk that's anointed on the horses. My school in the psalm where I could always recall my mother so near in the next post station.
0: That is, uh, that's very sweet. And, uh, and here's the song. so much, Christopher. That's really, uh, it's great that you could uh, share that with us. And it's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I uh, hope you'll join us again next time uh, we, we talk about anything Mongolian. <laughs> I, hope,
3: I hope we got something better,
0: better to talk about next time. But uh, it would be nice if there were some nice things we could talk about.
3: But um, yeah, I, it's a, been a pleasure. And thank you very much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it.
0: All right. Thank you. Thank you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Gola and Jeremy Goldcord with editing help by Jason McRoddle. Drop us an email at Sinica at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out our other podcasts in the Sinica Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.